You know, so Alcohol in Space is the book. It was published by McFarland Publishers back in um, late October. And um, it started off, the concept started off originally as a bit of a joke. So there's just all these stories. And I realized looking at all the companies and groups working on it and the fascinating history of drinking in space. And there was more than enough for a book. So I figured might as well be the first person to write it. Vodka's not the drink of choice in space. Cognac is. Chris Carberry is our guest today, and he is the CEO and co-founder of Explore Mars, a nonprofit which was created to advance the goal of sending humans to Mars within the next two decades. He's also the author of a new book called Alcohol in Space. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Chris Carberry, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Uh, you are, I mean, I'm, we were looking at doing our due diligence before we started the podcast. You're involved in a lot of things, Mars, it seems. Explore Mars, you're the CEO and co-founder of Explore Mars, right? Which is a nonprofit. I am, I am. And first off, yeah. thank you for having me on. But yeah, Explore Mars is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we're one of the most influential space nonprofits out there. But obviously, we're focused on getting humans to Mars. So, do you when you say you're focused on that? Do you set policy, or do you what do you, what do you actually do to get us to Mars? Well, what we do is we don't set policy specifically, but we influence policy. Okay. And so the, the way we do that is we bring various stakeholders together, people in industry, at NASA, commercial, international players and policy makers, bring them together and brainstorm different ideas, try to figure out how to create an efficient and sustainable program. We do this through our Humans to Mars Summit, which is the largest annual conference focused on sending humans to Mars. And that's yeah, the my next... good friend uh, Harley Thronson was a part was a part of that. I don't know if he still is, but uh, yeah, I've oh, watched yeah. it every year. I've watched it every yeah. year. Yep, Harley's a good friend, and Harley's been very much engaged with our organization for a number of years. And so that happens every May. This time it's May 12th through 14th at the National Academy of Sciences building. But we also run the uh, Mars Achievability Workshops, which actually Harley ran for mm -hmm. um, actually every year until this one, until he retired from NASA Goddard. Um, and so that workshop brings together these stakeholders, including the lunar community, to try to figure out how to create a sustainable program. And if we're going to go back to the moon, how to utilize the moon in such a way that it helps us get to Mars rather than being a hindrance. Well, I want to go, I want to drill down into that uh, to Mars specifically, but I just got to ask you the big, the big picture here before we go too much into detail seems very chaotic right now. Are we in fact going to Mars or are we going to the moon or are we doing both? I mean, what is our direction right now with, with regard to human spaceflight and going to either the moon or the Mars? Can you give us a big picture of that? Yeah, it looks like we're doing both. I'm actually quite <laughs> I'm quite pleased with this, actually. The way it's developed, the administration, NASA, and Congress seem committed to going back to the moon in the 2020s, but making sure that the focus really keep is kept on Mars. So if we go back to the moon, make sure that it's done in a way, just like our workshop says... <laughs> Do it in such a way that really does advance the goal of getting to Mars. As such, you can, it cannot turn into a moon-only program. Once it does that, then we won't be going to, going to Mars anytime in the next few decades. So this is going to take a lot of effort from all players because a tendency would be, as mission architect folks are designing programs, it's easier just to plan a yeah, mission to the moon without thinking about Mars. But it's, not, it's very short-sighted. You know, so in the long run, it's far more efficient to think about both and design and architecture that can 
do both. There's not complete overlap between the moon and Mars, of course, different gravity. Mars has an atmosphere and a number of other factors, but there are a lot of overlaps that they can take into account when designing the lunar architecture to make sure that it's helpful for getting us to Mars. So we don't have to start from scratch the moment we get when we're on the, um, on the surface of the moon. Okay, so the way I heard it, the last I heard was that we wanted to get to the moon, the surface of the moon, boots on the ground, uh, in 2024-ish time frame. And to do that, right prior to, to having that goal, NASA was setting up this gateway, uh, this gateway program, which would be the Lunar Gateway, which would be in cislunar space, and it would be a platform from which a lot of other activities were launched, including going to Mars, but primarily it would be for... Uh, maybe making a longer-term presence on the moon. I have always been a big proponent of the Gateway program. I thought it was the right thing to do. I still think it's the right thing to do. Even though it's not direct to Mars, I think that the infrastructure that's going to get set up there is important and will be very useful uh, with technology development to get us to Mars. And I'd like to get your thoughts on, on what you think of the Gateway. But is that kind of where we are right now, going yeah, to Mars is. and Gateway at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. As with the Gateway we're supportive with certain caveats, you know, <laughs> you know, don't forget gate, Mars. <laughs> well, that's it. Don't forget Mars. But the gateway cannot turn into a destination unto itself. It cannot turn into ISS around the moon. And so it has to remain focused. It has to remain modest. So it really is uh, really is um, advancing the goal of getting to Mars. And one of the ways of doing that are is using that facility as you build it to truly test out uh, capabilities needed for going to Mars, like the ECLIS system and other systems. So essentially, uh, Gateway is, serves as a transit vehicle for Mars, but in orbit around the moon. So you're getting to test out all these systems. At the same time, of course, it's also serving as a conduit to go to the surface of the moon or elsewhere around in cislunar space. And so if we can keep it modest but still effective and hopefully be able to um, stimulate private sector activities, I think that's the best case scenario. So I think the Lunar Gateway can be extremely valuable as long as it remains in focus and doesn't grow beyond you know recognition, turn into a space station uh, similar to ISS around the moon. If that, if that happens, then we're not likely to go to the surface of the moon or Mars anytime soon. Yeah, God, that was a mess. We started out with the Freedom Space Station, and then over decades of time, it ended up as the International Space Station with no real clear driver behind it. In your opinion, is the Gateway sufficiently focused? It seems to be in current mission architecture thinking, but once again... <laughs> This can change, like uh, you know, pretty instantaneously. That's my gripe about about what's going on with NASA is that they're set up to fail. I feel like by policymakers, I feel like they don't get the chance to implement the last goal they had before they got thrown a new a new curve. And I think that what the reason I'm supportive of the Gateway is that no matter what the goals of NASA end up being, this will be a contributor to all of it. <laughs> and so it it. You know, I wonder, I worry about NASA and its ability to do things only because the goal, the targets keep changing. Yeah, but that's true. But there's also to their credit, or at least to Congress's credit, there was a lot of fear before the last election that when the new president came in, whoever it was, they didn't know who was going to be the next president back in, you know, lead up to the 2016 elections. They wanted to make sure that the next president didn't completely change direction. And so they worked on the NASA Transition Authorization Act, which was finally signed into the law by President Trump in early 2017. But it had been worked on for many months before even the election. As the CEO of Explore Mars, what, how do you see the best way for us to get to Mars being? Do you just want to go straight there or do you have other plans? What's the best plan for getting us to Mars? I don't think there is a best plan at the moment. I think there are a lot of great ideas, but we Explore Mars generally goes under the assumption that this will be a government, at least partially, probably mostly government-funded program. As such, we have to have make certain assumptions 
based on this. And while even though you get, you've seen a lot of um, efficient programs proposed over the year, whether it was Mars Direct by Robert Zubrin, there's a lot of, of course, Elon Musk uh, proposes a lot of grand concepts, and that's great. And we certainly hope he can move forward. If he can do it privately, that's great. But if you, if we assume that it's going to be a government-funded program, uh, it's never, it's not going to be all invested in one company. So the best path forward isn't necessarily the most efficient program possible, but it's the most efficient program that's also politically feasible. And so it's trying to find that balance between political feasibility and efficiency, hopefully dramatically better than some of the programs that's been that have been uh, proposed before. But uh, still probably not the most efficient um, options that are actually possible. And so I think that's important because we do need to, if, we, if it's government funded, we need to maintain political support. And sadly, in many cases, you know, that's always been based on the fact that the program is spread out around the country and therefore guaranteeing uh, key support from, well, well-placed members of Congress. One thing that has always made sense to me was, you know, the idea of going to the moon first. And I, I know very little about this project, um, but it does seem that, like, I don't know how you plan for just the the physiological issues. And, you know, how do you protect humans in space once you're outside of that magnetic protection without having ample time, you know, on the moon or, or something outside of that protection to really know what happens? I mean, Don Pettit was telling us that people or that men were going blind in one eye in space, even from within that protection and that it wasn't happening to women. And it just seems like a a straight flight there. You know, once next stop Mars kind of approach would be very high risk to I mean, obviously, it's a high risk venture in the first place, but just really hoping for the best because we don't really understand what happens to humans long term outside of that protection do we well that's that's partially true we we yeah obviously we don't have as much experience as we probably should uh beyond low earth orbit however we do know about you know some of the key problems dangers that people have brought up over the years you know that's one of them the eye problems it's not universal but it's something we do need to study between now and going to the moon or rather going to mars of course However, one of the other issues is um, radiation. However, right. that appears to be overblown. You know, there's extrasolar events, but though that's a different. Those those could actually kill the astronauts instantaneously, but you can shield against those. The regular background radiation, uh, which people are actually become more uh, concerned about, you know, based on the numbers we've seen from MSL, you know, the Curiosity rover when it was transiting to Mars and on the surface, it looks like the radiation level, while, you know, more than we would prefer, still would only, you know, it's not something that would kill the astronauts on the mission. Essentially, they say it'll increase their chances of cancer, you know, by a few percentage points sometime in their lifetime. And I, that's that seems to me like it's a risk that almost every astronaut's going to take, particularly yeah. given the fact that, if they know that's happened, they're going to be monitored more closely and they probably can be treated fairly quickly based on that. You never know, you know, some some forms of cancer are more virulent, and, but it's still only increasing your chance of cancer by a small percent, number of percentage points over their lifetime. Other problems, of course, are the ones we've heard about with the decay of musculature and heart issues. But a lot of the astronauts who have actually followed their exer exercise regimen have, um, you know, been able to manage that pretty well. And there, I believe there have been a some astronauts with no, <laughs> that have shown no um, bone loss at all when they've really kept up this exercise regimen. So I think this is manageable. There are always going to be risks. Right. and But I don't even think those are the particular risks. I think it's going to be because of the um, risks inherent with sending people in a tiny tin can so far from Earth without help. I think it's more like the right. Apollo 13 sort of risk. Whereas you can't have a free, you could have a free return from Mars, but the astronauts would be long since gone by the time they got back. So you have to figure out how to create systems and how uh, to 
to be reliable enough to keep astronauts alive for the entire, you know, assuming we take six to eight months to get there, if we were on the surface for a year and a half, and then another six to eight months back, you know, three years away from Earth. That That is the biggest issue, is making sure your systems are robust enough to um, keep your astronauts alive and make sure that, you know, there are contingencies for, you know, fixing problems along the way. You can't anticipate everything. And eventually, hopefully not early on in this program, there will be probably tragic accidents. But it is a high-risk venture. But I think most of the issues we've talked about or we hear are manageable. That eye issue is one I haven't heard solutions for, but it's also not one that all the astronauts encounter. So I'll be interested to hear some of the studies behind that and if there are, if there are um, any contributing factors that you can predict. Yeah, there could well, be that- many things go wrong. You know, once you you launch that RV into space, you can't build you can't build too many redundancies into that, right? So if if you had things go wrong, yeah, it would be impossible to to get back. It's not it's not a short trip. That's why I'm a big fan of the Gateway. You want if you do that stuff outside the Earth's magnetosphere, three days away from Earth, you get a, you you could study these things we're talking about with with the physiological effects and all of this other stuff. You can also work out a lot of other technological issues. And and if things go wrong, you're three days away. You're not a year away or two years away. Right. So I, that's why I think the gateway is a very good start to getting us to Mars. Oh, and I agree with that. But we also as a country and as a species need to get accustomed to risk again. We shouldn't needlessly risk the lives of our astronauts. Are you saying we're not used to it now? (laughs) Well, we're not. I mean, I think People are, we're overly hesitant to um, increase the risk for astronauts. And, you know, going to Mars is a much more dangerous activity. <laughs> I than, don't see that in Elon Musk. I don't think he's got a problem. No, no he doesn't. He's ready to launch but one anything today. anything that's got government funded, you know, think of, yeah. think of all, you know, so for instance, when we had those space shuttle accidents, they were horrible tragedies. Right. But it's, think about... You know, anywhere else in government, the military or anything else, you know, there are regular, regularly training accidents. People, you know, major pieces of hardware are destroyed and you barely hear anything about it in the press. With NASA, well, yeah, we have a limited number of assets for NASA, like when we had the space shuttles. But, you know, it's a much more high profile activity. So people are a little more hesitant to risk that. But if we have any hope of actually sending people beyond low Earth orbit or even back to the moon, which is also beyond low Earth orbit, of course, right. um, we, we need to start accepting risks because that's how we will actually learn and be able to make it safer. When we were, you know, beginning to cross the Atlantic for the first time, that was an extremely high risk activity, more so than going to Mars. Now, one you could say, of course, we knew we could live and breathe on the other end, but and there was food there. But nonetheless, it was extremely dangerous. So I, we, we will need to accept a certain level of risk to do this. And by doing so, it'll pay off as we learn how to manage the risk, learn how to create better systems, and hopefully learn how to speed up the trip as well. But we can't wait for that until we go, or we'll never go, and we'll never figure out how to do it. You sometimes need the incentive to make these breakthroughs by actually doing it. Just like when we were crossing the Atlantic for the first time, it was in ships intended for the Mediterranean. Shipbuilding technology hadn't advanced for you know centuries, but once we had that incentive, Shipbuilding technology um, advanced dramatically over the following centuries. Chris, you should run for president. I for <laughs> uh, <laughs> I no comment. No off comment. That alone, <laughs> off that alone. Off that alone. I think that uh, that's awesome. Just the explorer mentality and just go for it, right? I mean, if we we should be pushing ourselves. I don't think we should have left the moon. I understand it's very expensive, but we were coming off the greatest victory, the greatest human achievement of all time. And of course, I, of course, we should have never left the moon. It's like, yeah. it was the most ridiculous thing. But, you know, it was driven once again. This is why and I'm sorry to cut you off. 
No. This is why we also need to, and we are, thinking about Moon and Mars differently this time. And while people say, well, there was so much more support then, I don't know that there was. And we only had one reason for going to the moon. It was a very effective reason to beat the Soviet Union. But it was not sustainable. Once we had done that, all right, we've done that. Uh, what's the compelling reason to keep going? Obviously, scientists and others had good reasons, but it really wasn't built into the the justifying um, reasons for going. Going to the moon and Mars, we have actually far more broad-based support for that than I believe there was actually back in Apollo. People have looked back in history with rose-colored glasses. You know, people were behind it when it actually succeeded, but they weren't necessarily behind it in the run-up to it. And I think we have a lot more good reasons for going to the moon and Mars. And sometimes sometimes that works against us because, you know, people will say, oh, the uh, NASA and the Mars scientists can't make up their mind why we're going. Well, that's because there are dozens of good reasons rather than the one good reason, the one benefit of that one reason beating the Soviet Soviet Union was it was easy to understand. <laughs> and so, yeah. but, you know, searching for life on Mars, figuring out if we can sustain humanity elsewhere, you know, the, the, the being able to advance all these technologies, uh, just, it goes on and on and on and on, these great reasons that can have a dramatic impact on the country and the world. Well, I recently learned that it was a lot worse than that as far as support for the Apollo program. After Von Braun had built the Saturn V and it was successful, JFK was actually looking for a way out because he felt he had won. To him, winning the space race was about the biggest rockets. And once the Saturn V had been built, he felt like we had won that. And I, and there's a book out that recently made this case that he was trying to actually figure out a way to get out of his promise uh, of going to the moon by the end of the decade after that had happened. So it was very precarious that we got to the moon with the justification that we had, even though we were, getting there was you know, the Soviet Union reason, you know, beating the Soviets there. So Well, yeah, precarious. and when people yeah, and people saying, you know, I think this has been also false hope within the space community, everybody calling for, oh, we need another Kennedy moment. I'm well, tired a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a lot of presidents a lot of presidents have tried to do the Kennedy moment, but does anybody <laughs> act regardless of how charismatic Kennedy was there was another key component of the Kennedy moment, which I doubt anybody, any president's going to want to um, um, <laughs> um, follow. Because, as you mentioned, there was that hesitation. But part of that momentum for the moon was actually trying to uh, achieve the wishes of the fallen leader. And I doubt any many, very many presidents are going to want to follow that path. So, I know. Yeah, that's so, a good point. That's a yeah, good point. So, it really that did play a dramatic role, you know, trying to fulfill that that great aspiration of, of JFK after, you know, after he was gone and and LBJ really pushing it forward, using that using that motivation. So it's just not it's not a realistic goal, you know, for as a motivation. It was a different time, different circumstances. And once again, we saw it was sufficient to get us to the moon. But it was not sufficient motivation or justification to create sustainability. It was not a sustainable program. No, and a lot of people also under underappreciate the leadership at NASA at the time. You know, the, the the administrator at the time was James Webb, and people are going, "Who the heck is what?" You know, when you said the James Webb Space Telescope, people are like, "Who the heck was James Webb?" Well, he was the NASA administrator during the Apollo era and led led NASA to the moon. Do you think that NASA that NASA has the right leadership uh, or the sufficient leadership to get us to the moon or Mars. I think, I think it might, you know, and I can't, I'm not going to comment on all the key positions at NASA, Oh, sure. but, yeah. Just, I, but overall, your overall opinion. I, I think so, because I think the level, I the level of enthusiasm with the administrator and other key people at NASA. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, obviously, differences of opinion around the country on the merits of the current administration, but there is strong support, clear support for human spaceflight, which enables the administrator who is very passionate and motivated to get it done. And that makes a difference. 
yeah, oh, I yeah. think I think when you have that, because even under the previous administration, like Charlie Bolden was yeah, a great advocate for Mars, but it was always unclear if there was true, truly strong support coming from above. And without that, you know, there's a limit to what you are able to do. And so I think now this has been building over time. And this is actually you have to um, give credit to your previous administrations moving forward as well. This momentum for Mars and human spaceflight, you know, uh, within Congress, within the administrations and other and within industry has been growing. I mean, we've been I've been going to Capitol Hill for (laughs) some time now (laughs) when I started going to um, the Hill to talk about, you know, ask people, oh, we should send humans to Mars. And this was actually back in the late 90s, mid to late 90s when I started doing that. They would look like, look at you as though you were nuts, you know, and, and you know, very few people would really take you seriously when you went to tell them, yeah, we should send humans to Mars. Yeah, right. Um, that you would have that giggle factor or they'd look at you as though you're wearing Vulcan ears. And... Um, but since then, you know, I was we, we were doing a legislative event earlier this week, actually, the SEA Legislative Blitz with Explore Mars Runs. It's a grouping of eight nonprofits, but we're the ones who coordinate it. And in the last few years, we've noticed even like five years ago, you'd see some skepticism. Offices would say, oh, yeah, we support it, but we have other priorities. But now it's very rare to find a congressional office, either Republican or Democrat, that will openly oppose this. And many of them are extremely enthusiastic. They want to find a way to make this happen. I think one of the benefits of this is one of the very few issues that are, which are nonpartisan. You can't find too many of those. It doesn't take too many fingers to count the issues, the policies or the programs no, that are not, right. uh, they're not, you know, focused on party politics. This is one where it's indistinguishable between the Republicans and the Democrats. Um, And and that's a good thing because that's another great argument for it. No matter how much we're tearing each other apart from both sides, this is like one of these rare areas where we can come together as a country and inspire the world. Well, so let me ask you this then. As a... the CEO of Explore Mars, and you guys, you've already said that there's going to be compromises. We're not going to get there in the most efficient way and all of that stuff. All things being equal, how does Explore Mars see, envision the first trip to Mars? Describe what you would like to see that first trip to be like. All right. And I'm going to base this on what I see within the government's um sector, meaning working with industry, commercial, international players. Okay. It's, you know, it's a little different than if, say, Elon Musk can manage to find a way to execute his program through private funds. That's an entirely different um, scenario. Sure. But based on the mission architecture uh, designs we've seen, and we work with these people all the time within our, you know, with our working group, I see, you know, a you know, the first missions being fairly small between four and six people, and they will start in, it'll start off small, testing to see if we can actually, in fact, live on Mars. And this is one of the big um, uh, factors which I think people um, get confused on. We always hear about can, should we have one way missions to Mars? Uh, or even, you know, with some of the commercial players sending, saying they want to send large missions to Mars with 100 people at once in the first mission. I am skeptical about that because even though we're fairly certain we can actually live on Mars within habitats and eventually start utilizing ISRU and C2 resource utilization, we don't know that for a fact. And so I think it makes more sense to start off modestly, test out whether we can actually utilize the resources, whether it be the atmosphere of Mars, Mars, CO2 atmosphere, or harness the water, the frozen water on Mars to actually use that for, well, of course, water or creating um, oxygen or methane fuel. But we also need to see if we can grow, grow crops on Mars. That's a key part of sustainability. And so all these areas it would be useful to know this for a fact before we send large numbers of people or we're likely to have large numbers of dead people on Mars. 
So you'd want to test as many of these things as possible in the first mission. Yeah, the, the uh-huh. first couple, first two or three, just build it up. You know, probably not. For instance, don't rely on ISRU the first mission, but start doing the initial tests for ISRU and then start building on that and do the initial agriculture tests. But also see, you know, test things like the perchlorates on Mars. That's toxic to humans. How is it managed? Are you bringing it into the um, habitat on your spacesuits? Uh, we know that there are ways of dealing with perchlorates. Apparently, you can burn it off, you can wash it off, but that takes some process, and there are microbes that you can use to eat it off. But once again, we don't know how easy that's going to do when we're on the surface of Mars, and we don't know if it's going to be you know, brought into the habitat itself. So there are a lot of factors here that we probably should practice first and test out technologies and but build that program so that we can start expanding it, and hopefully one day we will have, you know, larger larger bases or even settlements or maybe one day colonies. And hopefully that's sooner than later, but I'd much rather have those test runs first to make sure that actually this is all feasible. And of course, there's another factor which gets a lot of play these days, as it should, but sometimes people over, I think, get a little too excited about it, and it's planetary protection. You know, is there yeah. life on Mars? And so we want to try to protect the life on Mars. And largely the arguments there is so we know if we're seeing Mars life rather than Earth life. We want to make yeah. sure we don't contaminate it. So we're confusing what we brought <laughs> with with what is indigenous to Mars. But is also the possibility, is it harmful to humans as well? So that's another factor, which, you know, it, I don't know if that, how likely that is or not. We don't know. We don't know if that's science fiction or or reality. I was talking with Robert Zubrin once, and that made him that topic makes him mad for some no, reason. Oh, trust me, I know that makes him mad. He's he he is, you know, on the scale of people who are uh, you know, in favor of planetary protection protocols, Robert's on the far end of as yeah. little as possible, whereas you that's have some right. people at NASA who just go too far off the other direction, if we followed their rules, we'd never be able to send people anywhere. And right now, the current direction is, you know, for at least the first few missions, once things are going, you know, who knows? But for those first few missions, maybe set set the um, set the rules similar to Antarctica, where you have certain areas that are protected, um, but certain areas where you go and you send the people, and you, which you know we're going to get um, uh, con- a level of contamination because people are just big bags of microbes, so we're going to contaminate. And but because you know, the thing is, the place where places where we want to send the people are exactly the same places that we want to search for evidence of life. It's where there are resources, water, etc. So it, that that's the, that's the big problem here, but. We need to figure it out and find a good, happy medium you know, so that we can send people there, but also take into account some of these concerns, but also the concerns of backward contamination. We don't want to bring something back that's um, hazardous to humanity or could be an invasive species, uh, an invasive mi- microbial species. Well, that would be scary. Uh, do you do you think what do you advocate sending all the stuff first, like the habitats and the and the equipment and the earth movers and all of that stuff before you send people or yeah, you just yeah. Do no, a quick pre, mission pre, and get back. Yeah. Pre-placement is pretty much part of all the architecture designs now. Oh, okay. All right. Pre-placement is generally part of the plans. So if you land, you know, land, um, crew vehicle supplies, maybe the return vehicle there, there are different versions, but yeah, I think as much as you can get there in advance would be great. It also, you know, if you have to send it all at once, and generally I think that's what SpaceX plans, but it increases the mass dramatically. And that's another big issue, which is a big topic within the workshops we run, looking at the long pole technologies. Long poles are those technologies we need to work start working on now if we have any hope of landing humans on the surface of Mars by the early to mid-2030s. And EDL, Entry, Descent, and Landing, is the number one long pole, according to most mission architecture designers. It's because the largest payload we've ever landed on Mars is the Curiosity rover, which is roughly one metric ton. 
um, by most estimates of current mission architecture thinking within, once again, the plans, the the missions of record, yeah, we're going to need to land between 20 and 40 metric tons. And that's a lot. That's a big difference. And it's not it, trivial to land on Mars either. That atmosphere doesn't stop you as much as you need it to. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the old the old saying within that community is, you know, it's the atmosphere isn't thick enough to do you any good. It's not going to slow you down much, but it's thick enough to really screw up your day. And so <laughs> it's you have to really take that into account. How do you manage the yeah. atmosphere getting through slowing down enough and then landing? And so it's it's a big issue. There are a lot of ideas for it. And I think we will we will we will achieve it. But it does will take some time for us to figure that out and accomplish that. So. Um, I kind of forgot okay. where we started here, that's but all right. that's that's all right. You got it. I, I was just asking you about sending stuff first, and you said that was probably that's what all the plans include. But come on, Chris. I mean, be honest, man. It's just it's just me and you right now. Are we really <laughs> are we really gonna make it to Mars by 2030? 2030? Well, if it's just the two of us or three of yeah. us, well, <laughs> then us. <laughs> please yeah. don't tell I anybody. This Dustin, is off the record. <laughs> it's just between us. Dustin won't tell anybody. He's sworn to secrecy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think it's most likely at this point it'll be orbital. I think we can certainly do an orbital mission by then. And but with people, with people, with people, with okay. people. and I generally we've been on the fence with our orbital missions. However. If we can achieve that with a clear goal and a plan for getting to Mars um, soon thereafter, two years after in 2035 or something like that, or, or yeah, 2037, that's that's fine. But it has to be designed in a way that it really advances the goal. And if when people were talking, you know, originally when we were talking about orbital missions, they were even talking further out, whereas, you know, we would be pushing landing off or you know, the 2040s or 50s. And so, but this is another critical thing with EDL. And this is why we you need such a lead time. We can't assume we're, we can't wait until we're orbiting Mars to start on EDL, because if we do that, we may not be able to land on Mars by 20, until 2043 or later. So we need to start it now. And um, what's EDL? It, uh, entry, descent and landing. Sorry. <laughs> Oh, got it. That's all right. That's all right. I just Sorry to, to fall into acronyms. <laughs> so how does it work? How does it work on Mars when you're landing things? Because clearly, I mean, we've we've landed things on Mars, but how do you do it with that that atmosphere issue if you can't get it to slow you down? Well, you, it will slow you down. It just won't slow you down enough. And so with, for instance, the Curiosity rover or some of the previous rovers, you know, there were a couple different landing methods. Um you know, like, well, let me jump back to um, Spirit and Opportunity. You know, they came in, you know, the atmosphere slowed them down a bit. Then they had parachutes and then they had retro rockets. And then with the Spirit and Opportunity, then they had the airbags, you know, so it would bounce. <laughs> then, but Curiosity was too big for that. And so they had similar, similar entry and parachutes and... Retro rockets, except you had the sky crane uh, that would lower it on a retro rocket um, pack, and then it would be lowered down on a crane. Uh, but that you can't do that with people. That's we need. We need to actually lower them down gently with retro rockets. But it's like what's what's going to be the method between entry into the atmosphere and getting them getting them to the surface. And so there are a number of concepts out there for doing that successfully. And I'm not going to go through each one because I'm not I'm a policy guy. So I don't get too far out of my depth of trying to explain all the details of um, entry, descent and landing. But I'm very familiar with them just, you know, by sitting in the room all the time and listening to all the experts we're working with. But um, it, it is a challenge. But it's once again, I think it is a challenge we will overcome. Yeah, I was just going to say there's a big difference between one metric ton and 40, right? So, I mean, what worked with uh, Curiosity, I don't know if it scales, right? These retro rockets and sky cranes and all of that stuff would have well, to be pretty large. Yeah, no, it wouldn't scale. You can't use a sky crane for people. So you have other, you know, you have all these arrow, <laughs> arrow shell concepts and then... With SpaceX supersonic retro propulsion. Nah, you, you just bounce the people. You just bounce them in big balloons. That's what Well, that doing. would be that would be kind of fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Can we talk about your um, your new book? I know it's changing gears a little bit, but I, I saw that you just wrote a new book and um, or recently, and I thought how fascinating this uh, this idea. I want to talk about it and what uh, how that came to you. Well, great. I was hoping we'd get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so Alcohol in Space is the book. It was published there by McFarland Publishers back in um, late October. And um, it started off, the concept started off originally as a bit of a joke. As you know, you know, in the space community, you know, after an event, we go to the bar and, you know, occasionally get silly after drinking a few drinks and start hypothesizing about could you grow grapes on Mars? What would the wine taste like? Would it taste rusty? You could brew beer in space. But over the years, you know, I was pondering writing an article, you know, lighthearted. But over time, I realized I kept finding all these different companies and groups that are actually looking at this. And and also noticed there was a fascinating history of consuming alcohol in space. But I started, as I looked closer, you know, there were dozens of companies and organizations looking at whether you can manufacture alcohol in space or finding ways to consume alcohol in a more pleasurable manner. And right, you know, even right as we speak, I believe there are three, three alcohol-related experiments up on the International Space Station at the moment. Budweiser has already sent its fourth barley experiment to ISS. There are twelve bottles of Bordeaux up on ISS right now in an aging experiment, and currently there's an, a whiskey aging experiment up there. Uh, from Suntory, the uh, Japanese whiskey maker. But they're not the first. Ardbeg, the Scottish whiskey maker, sent uh, the first whiskey aging experiment up to ISS in 2011. And there, But there are many, many other companies that are looking at this here on the ground as well, looking at whether you can create alcoholic beverages that would be suitable for drinking in space. You know, an example of two examples of this are a, a, an Australian brewery and aerospace company that created Vostok beer, looking at a beer that you can drink in space. And you may ask, why, why, why couldn't you drink a normal beer in space? Well, there is a big issue with that is <laughs> uh, carbonated beverages. Well, in addition to being officially prohibited in space at the moment, I'll get to that in a second. But carbonated drinks are not pleasant in space. As you know, um, you know, on in zero, not zero, in one G here on Earth, carbonation, the gas, you know, disperses into the atmosphere. The bubbles rise and the disperse. In space, they don't do that. They go to the center and they start expanding. And it does that in your stomach also. And so when astronauts have consumed carbonated beverages in space, they've reported stomach cramps and wet burps. Not exactly what you want in your for a pleasurable drink, and so <laughs> Vostok has been looking at the balance between taste and carbonation. And taste is another problem because astronauts report, you know, a loss of uh, their sense of taste. It's like they have a head cold, but they also, you know, with this beer, trying to find a you know lower level of carbonation, and they've tested that like three times on on a zero g flight. But the champagne industry is also looking at it. Maison Mum, Maison Mum in France is also looking at a champagne, uh, champagne, a bottle, and a glass to consume their their product in space. You know, in their space tourism, and they wanted the special glass so you can drink it more authentically because they said they wanted to in, to increase the conviviality of drinking the champagne in space. <laughs> So there's so just all these stories, and I realized looking at all the companies and groups working on it and the fascinating history of drinking in space, and there was more than enough for a book, so I figured might as well be the first person to write it. No, absolutely. You're talking to the right guys. We like uh, space, and we like scotch. So, <laughs> you know, normally Especially scotch Ardbeg. makes its way. Yeah, Ardbeg. Yeah, well, always... It's kind of funny with Ardbeg because I— the Ardbeg was my favorite scotch before I knew they had anything to do with space. I, you know, I love big smoky peaty yeah. scotches. And so I just I really happened to be, I just happened to be <laughs> sipping Ardbeg one night 
And, you know, and I was looking at their Facebook page and it was covered with space images. And I thought, well, this is really weird. (laughs) And so I looked further into it and realized that they had sent up a space experiment with nanoracks. And it did all these coincidences, all these connections I realized were there, which I had no idea, idea about. And so I reached out. And since then, Ardbeg's been our official Scotch sponsor every year at the Humans to Mars Summit. So <laughs> it's been quite a wow. beneficial relationship. That is amazing. <laughs> have you have you tried their um, they the they did a tip of the hat um, scotch to that project called Galileo Ardbeg? Have you tried it? I have tried Galileo. I've also tried Supernova. Oh, I haven't seen that. Yeah, that, that, that was their highest end one. They had unlimited production a few years ago. They sent me a bottle of that. But there's a new version of it out right now. It's supposed to be their peatiest one yet also. They also, yeah, so, well, I don't have to go too far into that. <laughs> so you've written an entire book on alcohol in space, and yet the drinking of it is prohibited right now. So what do we, what do we know about actually consuming alcohol in this environment? Ha, interesting question, because even though it has been prohibited, doesn't mean it's not happening. Oh, I see it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not official. So I thought it was official. just carbonation. I thought it was just the, the carbonated drinks that you were saying were prohibited. Like, so it's, Well, it's no, the carbonated alcohol. drinks are prohibited at the moment also. I don't know if that's universal around every space agency, okay. but officially alcohol is prohibited by every space agency, but... You know, wink, wink. It's yeah. it happens, and we know which country is the probably the primary uh, contributor to smuggled alcohol up there. It's not <laughs> well, not a secret. Not the Russians right? do smuggle it up, but the Americans participate. And everybody tells me, you know, when I mention that, they say, "Oh, I bet there's a lot of vodka on ISS." Uh, no, vodka is not the drink of choice in space. Cognac is. And really? so, yeah, cognac's been sent up. I don't know. I've heard various reasons for that. One, that it's a more it's a more special drink. You know, we want something a little more special when we're up in space. Another wow. another potential option is that cognac has a stronger taste than vodka. And so it might offset some of that loss of, uh, you know, your sense of taste. But regardless... Cognac well, you're not going to be drinking ten high up there, that's for sure. I mean, well, you know, no, <laughs> yeah, no. And so taking this Jello is the thing. Shots. It's been primary, the primary drink. And they're not drinking a huge amount, but astronauts and cosmonauts will drink it on special occasions. If a new crew comes up, they will have a little reception, have little shots of cognac, and it's served an interesting role as being a bonding experience. Sometimes in very tense times bringing together the international crews to really um you know well bring them together in a bonding um you know activity so i think it has served a valuable role um it's only been done in moderation they don't i haven't heard of any cases where astronauts have become inebriated in space but it happens and there are many stories of this you know on iss of course prior to that on 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 mir of course and there's also some cases of the um, alcohol floating over to the space shuttle when the space shuttle was flying as well. And so it, it happens. But once again, the astronauts that I've heard of, and a number of them did talk to me for my book, um, all mentioned it was all done extremely um, responsibly. Nobody ever gets drunk. But it's just done once in a while on special occasions. And it's actually, you know, it serves actually an interesting purpose. So I think I think um, I think it's something to look at in the future because there is some value to it. Like with anything else, you don't want your people responsible for the lives of the crew or anybody else being uh, yeah, drinking a lot of alcohol on duty. But as we send more people up and as the commercial sector starts sending tourists up, we know there's going to be drinking. And even though we know there has been drinking in space, we don't have any official data on how humans metabolize alcohol in space. Through anecdotal tales, we know that at least we know they can consume it without adverse effects, but that's still been very modest amounts of alcohol. And so it'll be interesting to see. And I think this is why a lot of the commercial Entities like Budweiser and others and Suntory are investing. You know, they want us. They want to take part in 
you know, the new commercial space industry. I suspect they don't expect, I don't think they think they're going to make a huge amount of money up front, but that the promotional, the PR value of it's going to be extraordinary. Well, in order to get a good 10 to 15 year scotch out of Ardbeg so that we get it from Mars, you're going to have to get them started on that now. Get a special Mars uh, whiskey ready. Oh, that's true. That's you could yeah, that you know, and I I talk to those guys all the time. So yeah, that, get that, them going. That, that would be a great idea. I mean, I bet we could convince them that because they are extremely enthusiastic about this stuff. I, I think that's a great idea, and I, I actually I, I am going to suggest that to them. You know, within the next you know day or two, great idea because that is oh, perfect good. timing, and so. Yeah. Um, Yes. <laughs> well, it yeah. was officially a Space Junk podcast idea, which uh, means they owe us a bottle. They Yes. I, oh, I I'm sure they'd be more than the happy least, to send a bottle. <laughs> the least they could do is send us one. That's right. <laughs> oh, man. That's it really cool. It all started here. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> what a fascinating book idea. That is awesome. I, I think that uh, obviously that book is going to do extremely well. I mean, it's how cool. I mean, just what a what an awesome thought. You know, two things that everyone that comes to the podcast, they're always excited about that because we keep scotch in here in the podcast, usually Lafroig and Ardbeg. Um, I'm a big fan of the PD stuff. And, um, you know, it's just one of those things that go well together, especially sitting outside with the telescopes the way that we do with the amateur astronomy side, you know, very oh, rarely. Dude, dude, could you imagine anything better than to be sitting in the, in the cupola of the space station with a nice scotch in your hand, man? That would be yeah. like... Oh my God! <laughs> yeah, and there is actually, and there is actually going back into other companies. There has been actually work on a Scotch glass for space, where you can actually drink it more authentically. Where it's working on these grooves, how to you know fluid dynamics, how fluids adhere to surfaces, and using grooves so that you can actually drink. Uh, out of a Scotch glass, another company that's working on a cocktail glass using similar. Use similar technology, so there's a lot of thought about not only having the drinks in space, but also being able to consume them more authentically. So it's not just like spraying your scotch into um, the into air and just <laughs> sipping out the little orb just of scotch. Running, you know? running your face into these blobs of floating <laughs> scotch. <you know? laughs> what is he doing? Oh, man, he's enjoying a nice peaty scotch yeah, right now. Sipping a scotch. Yeah, so it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting time, and it's, it's, it's remarkable how many people are looking at this. It just every time I look, more people, I find more people, and people tell you, yeah, since the book has come out, I've learned all these different stories, so I practically have another book worth in my, you know, that I could do based on the new stories, and it certainly will be an update of the book at some point. But of course, I also look at other areas as well that are relevant. I look at the um, how it's been addressed in science fiction, and we all know of plenty of science fiction writings and television and movie movies where there's been a lot of drinking but also the history of alcohol in society. And I think that's very important to give the context because as you look at the role of alcohol throughout human civilization and the role it's played, and it's played a very significant role in the um, advancement of human civilization, it's not going to stop when we send people into space. So with the assumption it's going to happen, it's a legitimate area for research because we're just going to go up and then because we were too shy or too nervous to talk about it out in the public, we're just going to um, just let the chips fall, you know. Well. I've got a calibrated liver, so I'm totally fine with being a subject in this. In this <laughs> well, that, so. I, there may be there may be those opportunities coming up, <laughs> but I also I also look at the enabling technologies like agriculture because, of course, we're not going to have any sustainable alcohol production in space if we don't have any agriculture or at least biomass of some sort. So I look at agriculture projects for space. I look at synthetic biology and other uh, other relevant um, technologies out there that could be enabling to alcohol in space, but also, quite honestly, enabling to human sustainability. I realized in writing this that the requirements for uh, manufacturing alcohol in space, particularly Mars, are almost identical to those requirements for sustaining humanity. So that's why this is very important, because look at look at what Budweiser is doing. You know, whether you like Budweiser or not, it's irrelevant. 
It's look at, you know, if they're doing a barley experiment, not only is that relevant to other beers and scotch, but, well, it's not going to be scotch if it's made on Mars, of course, but whiskey. <laughs> um, right. It's, but it's also an investment in agriculture and space. So that that investment goes well beyond the agriculture industry, rather the alcohol industry. That is investing in sustainable human existence beyond our planet. It's well known that we are all made of barley stuff. So yes, it is. Yeah, I think yes. that's the same. Amen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mars. What would, what would you call it? Marsky, maybe Marsky. Or, Marsky. Yeah. yeah I have to think of that still, but uh, yeah. Wow. Are you, are well, you drinking right now, Tony? I I, I soon will be. I can, I, can predict, I can I can predict this in my future already. I, I have to admit I have been drinking, but I've been drinking wine. <laughs> ah, okay. I never would have guessed, Chris, with you coming on this podcast, that you were sponsored by Ardbeg. I really <laughs> would vote for you for president. You have no idea what a home you have found here. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it's, kind no it's kind of funny. It's kind of funny. We we've often we've had as many as four alcohol sponsors at Humans to Mars Summit. And so I have to, and I, 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 well, I probably jumping the gun here, but we're about to, there's a new organization, which is being founded also, which I think you will, you'll enjoy, uh, which will announce officially soon the space drinks association, space drinks association. And there will be the first space Drinks symposium in 2020. We will announce the details of it soon. Um, I probably jumped a gun. My board's going to kill me, but you know, I, fi- I figured. <laughs> well, thanks since, for the scoop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so to look at not you look at all these issues that we because it's not just whether we want to go get inebriated in space. It is there are a lot of interesting issues and all and an interest a huge network of interested parties which are all working independently and aren't aware of each other largely. So realize, boy, and I re- as I researched the book. There, you know, a, a unifying entity is needed, so that will be announced pretty soon. So good, good. Yes, we must be united, and this will this will galvanize the support for space exploration. No question. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well, I want to thank you for uh, talking about your book and, and spending some time with us. But before I let you go, I just got to ask you one quick question: uh, Who's your favorite space billionaire? Is it Elon Musk? Is it is it Jeff Bezos or is it Richard Branson? Who's your favorite? Oh, space you're making me choose. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 well, let me let me put it this way. Um, you know, I, I don't know him well, but I've communicated on and off, and you know, worked in one way or another. You know, early on with Elon Musk back when yeah. I was with the Mars Society. You know, he was there at the beginning. You know, he and Robert Zubrin were proposing ideas. We, myself, and some of my colleagues helped advise him when he was hoping to send a greenhouse to Mars. And we were on this now famous call, Telecon, with a bunch of folks, um, where he he declared that he didn't like any of the launch launch options. You know, he didn't like the American or the Russian options. And he decided he wanted to build his own rocket. And to a person, including myself, we thought he was nuts. <laughs> but he did it. He did he it. Did it. Yeah. He he yeah. proved everybody wrong. And so, but I like them all. I mean, I think they're, I mean, I've only met Jeff Bezos once. I've never met Richard Branson. I think they're all doing extraordinary work. And I think it's going to take everybody. I think a lot of focus, I think people forget about the 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 traditional players as well. I think there's a lot of momentum within the space industry. Everybody wants to get it done. And I think, you know, finding that right combination from these newer players, uh, the legacy players, as well as international players, I think we're in a u- unique position in human history. Uh, we're, we have, I think we're just about there. You know, in, like in previous years, before all the architecture was actually uh, started or moved forward, Right now, we have a lot of systems, you know, um, that are right, just about ready to go online. So uh, if we can't actually get moving now, if we can't actually get back beyond low Earth orbit to the moon and Mars over the next decade or two, we we only have ourselves to blame because we are better positioned than we've ever been, you know, well, 
Yeah, ever. <laughs> to ever, be redundant. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. I agree with that. And so I guess I guess we'll leave that there. The next uh, the next thing coming up for you is the Humans to Mars conference in May, is that right? Yep, Humans to Mars Summit, uh, May 12th through 14th at the National Academy of Sciences Building in Washington. Beautiful building. If you haven't been yeah, there, come. It's it just is. a gorgeous building. Humans so to anybody Mars. anybody can go. Anybody can go as long as they pay their registration. Um, <laughs> and, and then we also do have a webcast, but it's going to be much better on site. And yeah. if you haven't seen the National Academy of Sciences building, that's worth coming itself. But we have a lot of surprises this year. It should be the biggest one yet. It already is the largest annual conference focused on sending humans to Mars, you know, where they're on site attendance. But we always have hundreds of thousands of people watching online as well. And oh, so yeah. they can go to exploremars.org to register for the conference. And you see, we already have a great lineup of speakers, but some additional big speakers will be announced soon. So we hope people will be able to come. Yeah, I catch the webcast every year. One day I'm going to go. I'm going to actually get up there. I wish I could go this year. This should be the year. This should be the year. I mean, (laughs) All right. Okay. Well, Chris Carberry, uh, whose new book, Alcohol in Space, Past, Present, and Future, is now out. Thank you for taking time out to talk with us about Mars and drinking in space. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. (laughs) All right. On behalf of Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.